Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. banks are broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians to prison, it will continue. That's right. Today is Monday, May 24th, and we are talking Consensus Day 1, 2021. (laughs) That's right, man. We are doing it this week. Four days. That's right. Four full 12, 14, 17, 20-hour days of content squished down to fit in your ears. Brought to you by car <laughs> every day. Today, we're going to do it a little bit different. There was so much good content today. Um, and it's just so, so overwhelming. The amount of, of editing that I had to do. Uh, I'm literally going to show the, the two main panels that I wanted to discuss today. Right. And then tomorrow, what I'm going to do, it's very light tomorrow. You know, it's a lot of China talk, <laughs> which I know is going to bore the crap out of y'all. I know. I just know it. I already know. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to move over a lot of this Bitcoin content that was from today. It was exceptional. And I'm going to move it over for tomorrow. And so that way we have some China. We got some Bitcoin. We have day one and day two tomorrow that we'll cover. And we have day one today that we'll cover. So that way it, it, it makes the it makes the podcast more interesting. Right. And this will give you a little bit of taste of what actually, because these two panels were the were the biggest news of the day, uh, and you probably already have heard, you probably already have seen. I'm gonna give you my interpretation of what really happened here. <laughs> there is so much sensationalism in this space when it comes to reporting. You know, we we can't just report the facts anymore. Uh, you know. I don't want to start off this way, <laughs> but, you know, just in, in mainstream media, just just in anything in general these days, I want to say it started, you know, like in 2017. I don't know. I don't know when or how or, or what happened, um, but I, I want to say that like we, we just can't as a society anymore. Just report facts. Uh, just report exactly what was said. 
you don't have to spin it for a headline. You don't have to show any ads around it. Like, just report what was said. Well, you know, we'll talk about it later, but, you know, there, there are some things that happened today where I'm just like, that's not exactly what he said. And so, of course, if you were following me on Twitter, you probably saw it all. But we're going to talk about all that. But before we get into any of that, I, I will say this. I will say this right now that um, this was actually a really good, strong first day from. I think this is probably the best consensus first day that I've ever seen. And I'm not just saying that, like, I'm really shocked <laughs> how how they hit it out of the park today, because these are usually terrible. And, and like I, I say that with all sincerity, like. These are really horrible to watch, but today was was really, really done well. Like there were some really interesting panels. It started off it started off really rocky, right? And and we'll talk about that. But for the most part, like and we'll, we'll cover a lot of these panels tomorrow. But the, I would I would say overall, day one was pretty exceptional. It doesn't get any better. You know, for for a uh, industry conference than this, uh, it's definitely my favorite consensus I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, like I'm surprised. I'm I'm genuinely surprised. Now the bad. So there's a lot of bad <laughs> with 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 today. You know, I think the UI for the streaming was terrible. They're just trying to get too cute. You know, I, you know. I know we're in this virtual you know world now and whatever but just keep it simple you know you know there's this there's this thing that we do here uh, when it comes to like uh, system administration and when it comes to like computer programming when it comes to just like understanding how networks work and function um, documentation it's just keep it simple stupid you know <laughs> don't try to think outside the box right um, just keep it simple, right? Find out the root cause. What are you trying to do here? And then just keep it simple. And I feel like that approach when doing these things would help tremendously. Okay. Other thing that really is surprising, and I don't know why they did this. They made a shitcoin this year. It's called Desk. And all you saw... Uh, on these chat because they have a chat on you know alongside all these you know these panels is just everybody shilling desk coin and asking for their desk coin that uh coin desk launched today why would you <laughs> show a shit coin uh during consensus like like what is going on like, um, why would you make that a thing? And then why would you s distribute it during these panels and then ruin the, you know, engagement, ruin the conversation that's happening in these chats? And all you're seeing is a flood and a fury of where's my desk coin? How do I get my desk coin? <laughs> desk, 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 desk coin is it was so it just makes the chat unusable. It's so sad, too, because like there's potential there like, you know, to have great conversation 
you know, when, when I when I look at South by the way they did it was, you know, they had a chat open, very similar to what Coindesk is doing. And there was a chat open, but they weren't shilling any kind of South by Southwest coin. You literally just talked amongst the rest of the people watching the panel and you had a chat, you had a conversation. And then every now and then the people that were on the panel would would say, hey, so and so said. And then it would make you feel like you were a part of the conversation. Right. They couldn't do that <laughs> today. So like these things, they just don't understand. And I, I don't I don't know why I, I don't understand like what it is uh, about Coindesk. Um, they just the whole company, the, that whole media organization, Coindesk, they just don't listen to anybody <laughs> that's outside of Coindesk. It's like it's like they have tunnel vision and they're just focused on doing the things that they do. And if, if it's outside of Coindesk, the company, they don't want to listen to it or they don't care. Uh, they, they just don't take criticism. They don't take feedback well. They just don't do that as a company. Uh, and I don't understand that. And I don't get that. Because you always want to get better as a company. You always want to grow as a company. You always want to listen to your customers. You always want to, you know, be better for your listeners, be better for your subscribers. But Coindesk as a media organization doesn't do that. And um, it's painful to watch them make these same mistakes every year. Okay. With all that being said, (laughs) let's jump into now this consensus 2021 It's going to be our third year covering it. If you don't know, this is the global conference that brings together entrepreneurs, traders, developers, academics, students, and the curious under one roof to explore developments in the crypto and blockchain space. And they they like to debate the future of finance, right? This is uh, the industry's largest event of the year. This is a four-day experience. You know, there's going to be over, I think think I saw like 3,000 people total. So a lot of people for for industry conference, for sure. Usually when you go there in New York, there's like 10,000, 13,000 people that show up and you're talking about like industry leaders, analysts, innovators, you know, crypto startups, policymakers, um, all sorts of people. Right. Uh, Even like financial regulators, too, which is pretty interesting. So with that, let's take a listen to what Coindesk has to offer today. Welcome to Consensus, presented by Coindesk. I'm Michael Casey, Coindesk's Chief Content Officer. We're excited for you to join us over the next four days as we welcome thousands from around the globe to learn what's next for the future of money. Today you'll hear from keynote speakers, Federal Reserve Governor Dr. Leo Brainard, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates, and media mogul Gary Vaynerchuk as they open the day. 
and stick around for helpful insights, deep analysis, predictions and debates unfolding in the explorations and foundations sessions. We'll also be exploring how crypto adoption is transforming the world as we know it in the crypto state sessions. Last, but certainly not least, there will be plenty of opportunities for you to network with other attendees. This year, we've partnered with virtual reality platform Nowhere to give you the chance to enter the virtual world of consensus and make connections in a new and engaging way. In addition, you can connect one-to-one -one with your peers directly in Bevy. Before we get started for the day, here are some helpful tips on how to get the most out of your virtual event experience with Bevy. So the very first panel was a special address from Dr. Lel Bernard. She's the member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and she came on to talk about actually a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> no, seriously. No, she, she actually came on to discuss uh, a press release. Uh, yeah, a press release. And, and this is something that you're not going to hear from Coindesk. This is something that you're not going to hear from the crypto media, uh, you know, the industry. No one's going to talk about it. This is something that you're not going to know because no one's going to bring it up because no one is like Carr. And when I see something, I call it like it is. Right. I just report the facts. I just report the news. I call it like it is because that's what you're supposed to do. If you're unprepared for something, you express that and you say that to the people who are listening, who are receiving the news, right? Um, if you read the Coindesk article, has no mention of this. So what occurred today during this panel? Well, this was probably one of the most painful panels I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, and and I, I don't mean to pick on this this uh, this young lady, but I will say that um, she she really needs to work on her uh, speaking skills. Uh, she needs to go back to like, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they do at the Federal <laughs> you know, Reserve Board, uh, but I'm sure they have some type of like, you know, PR, you know, 101 thing that that she can take uh, when it comes to this. Um, but she she was just unprepared. Uh, maybe she's an introvert. So we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Uh, 
So when she showed up for this thing, it was uh, Michael Casey who was actually doing the the interview. And he asked her one question. And I, at this point, I don't even remember what the question was. It was literally like, hello, Dr. Bernard. Thank you for coming to Consensus. Um, you said you had a special address. And then she just started blurting out words. And it was almost embarrassing to watch, but she literally read off a press release. But she did luckily, <laughs> she didn't have a piece of paper and read it and read it off like with the paper in front of her. She had the paper like off to the side, like she had a monitor off to the side and she was reading it the entire time. And then lo and behold, somebody, I don't know who they were, but somebody posted that same, you know, press release on the chat. So when you click on the link, you can see that she's clearly reading from this press release. Um, it was embarrassing. It was really embarrassing, right? Um, it was almost like, um, it was almost like, do you have you? I don't know if y'all ever, you know, took a college course with somebody who was like late to class, you know, showed up late on presentation day. And the teacher was like, yeah, I guess, I guess you can go. Um, yeah. What do you have? And then they had like barely anything. But and then the, the teacher was like, you know, you can go ahead. Come on. You'll be the last one. And then us as a class had to sit through it as this person fumbled through their presentation because they weren't prepared. It was like that. It was like you're wasting everybody's time, you know. So that's what it felt like. That's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of those kind of college days <laughs> where it was like, wow, it, it, is, is, this, is, is this professional? Like, what is this? Like, this is very unprofessional. Um, so that's what that was like. No one's going to report about that. No one's going to say that in these, in, these, um, in these articles. No one will bring it up. Um, but I'm telling y'all because that's what, exactly what happened. Um, so with all that being said... There was news in there. <laughs> there was news in there. And I, I, I will say this too. You know, I made a comment inside of that chat, you know, uh, not as harsh as what I'm saying right now. <laughs> I, I will say not as harsh as I'm saying right now. But I made a comment as like, now I see why. I think it was something like, it was something like this. Like now I see why she got passed for treasury secretary because I actually did research on her. You know, she's very dovish on China. Uh, so is her husband. And she was up for, you know, nomination to become the next treasury secretary before Janet Yellen. Well, you know, lo and behold, the, 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 the guy, I think, it's, I think he's the editor of Coindesk or whatever. He, he, like, he like blocks my comment and like says, if, if you can't say anything nice or something like that, then don't say anything at all or something like that. Uh, and I was like, no, <laughs> now, I wasn't the only one that was shocked by this. Everybody was saying the exact same thing. Like, wow, she's reading a press release. Like, wow, so unprepared. Wow, so unprofessional. Like everybody was saying these exact same things, right, in chat. So it wasn't just me, right, that said that. But I was trying to provide insight into now I see why she got passed up for Treasury Secretary. <laughs> like that was giving people insight into why she 
you know, is unprepared and why she is reading a press release. Like, you know, this was explaining why she got passed up. That was providing insights. Um, but it, yeah, it got deleted because they said it wasn't nice. Um, you know, I guess I'm, a, I guess I'm a little, you know, I call it like it is. I don't know what to say. Anyways, <laughs> all that being said, when you really look at the panel and we're about, you're about to listen to it right now. Um, it's about a good dash, about 12 minutes long. If you want to skip it, I, I will not blame you for skipping it. Right. Um, there's some stuff there, but I, you know, I will, I will explain it all for you when, when it's, when it's done, but it's about 12 minutes long. Brace yourself. But I do want to give you some, some, some nuance afterwards to explain what exactly is going on and what exact, what kind of dribble she's actually talking about. And, and, and I will say this, I will say this, maybe this is the way that they, the, the Fed explained to her that she had to do it. I will give her that. Maybe that's what it was. Um, but, you know, at least say that beforehand. Right. Um, and I believe it was, I think it was, I think when we went to the Bitcoin conference uh, in AM, like, I think it was, yeah, I want to say the Fed chair had said that beforehand, like these comments are mine or I'm speaking for the Fed here. Like he went back and forth with that. I want to say he did. So she could at least said that. Right. This is this is what the Fed has prepared for me. I'm about to read this now. Like, let us know that beforehand. Um, anyways, take a listen. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you uh, to Aaron and Michael and Coindesk for inviting me to join you here. Technology is driving dramatic change in the U.S. payment system. We saw the pandemic accelerating the migration to contactless transactions and highlighting the importance of access to safe, timely, and low-cost payments for all. With technology platforms introducing digital private money into the U.S. payment system and foreign authorities, exploring the potential for CBDCs in cross-border payments, the Federal Reserve is stepping up its activities on CBDCs. And as you know, Chair Powell announced the board's plans to solicit public input on this issue last week. Four developments are sharpening our focus on CBDCs. First, some technology platforms are developing stable coins for use in payments networks. 
stable coins vary a lot in the assets they're linked to, the ability of users to redeem their stable coin claims for the reference assets, and the extent to which a central issuer is liable for making good on those redemption rights. In contrast to central bank fiat currencies, stable coins don't have legal tender status. If widely adopted, stable coins could serve as the basis of an alternative payment system around new private forms of money. Given the network externalities in payments, there's a risk that we could see widespread use of private monies for consumer payments, which could fragment the payment system and introduce consumer protection and financial stability risks. Indeed, the inefficiency, fraud, and instability in the U.S. payment system during the period of active competition among issuers of private paper banknotes led to the need for a uniform form of money backed by the national government. Second, of course, the pandemic accelerated the migration from cash to digital payments in many countries. To the extent that digital payments crowd out the use of cash over time, it raises questions about how to ensure that consumers retain access to a form of safe central bank money. In the United States, we saw the use of cash spiking at certain times during the pandemic, but we also saw a pronounced shift by consumers and businesses to contactless transactions facilitated by electronic payments. Third, some foreign countries have chosen to develop and in some cases deploy their own CBDC. The issuance of a CBDC in one jurisdiction along with its prominent use in cross-border payments could have significant implications across the globe. And given the potential for CBDCs to gain prominence in cross-border payments and the reserve currency role of the dollar, it's vital for the United States to be at the table in developing standards. Finally, the pandemic underscored the importance of access to timely, safe, efficient, and affordable payments for all Americans. While the large majority of pandemic relief payments moved quickly via direct deposit to bank accounts, it took weeks to distribute relief payments in the form of prepaid debit cards and checks to households who didn't have up-to-date bank account information with the IRS. So in any assessment of the issuance and design of a CBDC, it's important to be clear about what benefits it might offer relative to current and emerging payments options, what costs and risks it might entail, and how it might affect broader policy object objectives. So I wanna just touch here on several of the considerations uh, that are important in my thinking. First, it is important to preserve general access to safe central bank money. Central bank money represents a safe settlement asset, allowing users to exchange central bank liabilities without concern about liquidity and credit risk. Consumers and businesses don't generally need to think about whether the money they're using is a liability of the central bank or of a commercial bank, because the two are seamlessly interchangeable owing to the federal deposit insurance and banking supervision that provide protection for consumers and businesses alike. It's not obvious that new forms of private money that reference fiat currency like stable coins can carry the same level of protection. New forms of private money may introduce counterparty risk into the payment system in new ways that could lead to concerns about consumer protection or at large scale, broader financial stability risk. By contrast, the introduction of the safe central bank money that's accessible to households and businesses in digital payments would reduce counterparty risk and the associated consumer protection and associated financial stability risks. A second consideration is the potential for a CBDC to reduce or even eliminate operational and financial inefficiencies. 
Today, the speed by which consumers and businesses can access funds following a payment can vary from a few seconds up to a few days. Advances in technology, including the use of distributed ledgers and smart contracts, may have the potential to fundamentally change the way in payment change the ways in which payment activities are conducted and the roles of financial intermediaries and infrastructures. The introduction of a CBDC may provide an important foundation for important innovation and competition in retail payments in the United States. Most immediately, we're taking a critical step in that direction with the introduction of the FedNow instant payments infrastructure that's scheduled to go into production in two years. A third consideration is the potential to promote competition and lower transactions cost. Today, the costs of certain retail payments transactions are high and not always transparent to end users. By providing access to a digital form of safe central bank money, a CBDC could provide a foundation on which private sector competition could flourish. Fourth, cross-border payments, such as remittances, represent one of the most compelling use cases for digital currencies. The intermediation chains for cross-border payments are notoriously long, complex, costly, and opaque. Digitalization, along with a reduction in the number of intermediaries, holds considerable promise to reduce the cost, opacity, and time required to get payments across borders. While the introduction of CBDCs may be part of the solution, international collaboration on standard setting and protections against illicit activity will be required in order to achieve material improvements in cost, timeliness, and transparency. It's important for the U.S. to be engaged at the outset on the development of any international standards that may apply to CBDCs, given the dollar's important role as a reserve currency. And we're already engaging in several international efforts on cross-border payments. Fifth, a guiding principle is that a CBDC should complement and not replace currency and uh, bank accounts. Consumers have access to reliable money in the forms of private bank deposits and central bank-issued currency currently, so any payments innovation should improve upon the existing system. Six, there are open questions about how a CBDC could affect financial stability and monetary policy transmission. Some research indicates that the introduction of a CBDC might raise the risk of a flight out of deposits at weak banks in favor of CBDC holdings at moments of stress. Banks play a critical role in credit intermediation and monetary policy transmission, as well as in payments. So the design of any CBDC would need to include safeguards to protect against disintermediation and preserve monetary policy transmission more broadly. Sixth, it's important to both protect privacy and safeguard the integrity of the payment system. The design of any CBDC would need to both safeguard the privacy of household payments transactions and prevent and trace illicit activity, which will require the digital verification of identities. To achieve these objectives would require working across government agencies to assign roles and responsibilities for preventing illicit transactions and clearly establishing how consumer financial data would be protected. And finally, it's important to advance financial inclusion. Today, fully five 0.4% of American households don't have bank accounts, and another nearly 19% were underbanked as of a few years ago. As we saw during the pandemic, the lack of access to bank accounts imposes high burdens on those households whose financial resilience is often the most fragile. CBDC may be one part of a broader solution to that challenge, depending on its design. A CBDC could lower transactions cost and increase access 
And in emergencies, it may offer a mechanism for the swift and direct transfer of funds, providing relief to those most in need. But of course, any solution would also need to address any perceived barriers to maintaining a transaction account, along with the need to maintain up-to-date records on active accounts for a large segment of the population. So to explore these really important issues, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta is launching a public-private sector collaboration as a special committee on payments inclusion to ensure that cash-based and vulnerable populations can safely access and benefit from digital payments. And a new Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland initiative will explore CBDC design features and delivery approaches focused on expanding access to individuals who don't currently use traditional financial services. We're also undertaking research into the technology considerations surrounding a CBDC. That is true of the Tech Lab Group of the Federal Reserve Board and also of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston's partnership with MIT on Project Hamilton to build and test a hypothetical digital currency platform using leading edge technology design options. That research aims to uh, explore the feasibility of the core processing of a CBDC while remaining agnostic about a range of policy decisions. A white paper is scheduled to be released next quarter that will document the ability to meet goals on throughput of geographically dispersed transactions with core processing and create an open source license for the code. Subsequent work will explore how additional requirements such as resiliency, privacy, and anti-money laundering will impact core processing performance and design. So just wrapping up, in light of the growing role of digital private money and the broader migration to digital payments, the potential use of foreign CBDCs in cross-border payments and the importance of financial inclusion, we are stepping up our research and public engagement on a digital version of the U.S. dollar. And to support those efforts, the Federal Reserve plans to issue a discussion paper to solicit public comments on a range of questions related to payments, financial inclusion, data privacy, and information security with regard to a, a CBDC in the U.S. context. We look forward uh, to that engagement and we remain committed to ensuring a safe, inclusive, efficient, and innovative payment system for all Americans. So let me hand it back to you. news from that was that the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston plans to publish its first white paper detailing 
its research around central bank digital currencies this summer. And uh, Bernard confirmed it. She confirmed it, which was pretty big, pretty big, um, pretty big there because uh, we didn't see that coming. Um, We had heard, you know, we had heard that, you know, you know, MIT was working on something, right? Like, I think that was back in, um, I want to say like February or something like that. But, you know, it was it was not something that we saw happening today, right? Um, so that was big. But I think I think the bigger thing here is when she was reading off this press release, <laughs> One thing I one thing I love to do when it comes to the Federal Reserve and when it comes to any of these regulatory agencies is I love to look at their sources because they pretty much give out like everything like they give out. I, I like to call it like a roadmap, <laughs> you know, it, it literally explains their agenda. Um because if you read through all these sources that she cited, there's 17 of them. I haven't read through all of them yet, but I kind of skimmed through most of them. Uh, and I read through quite a few of them. But uh, it gives you a roadmap into what they're planning. Uh, and and it's, it's quite scary. <laughs> I will say it's quite scary. Now, we know that the World Economic Forum, the people who brought you COVID, (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, From the people who brought you COVID, (laughs) the World Economic Forum, uh, I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm saying. We know the Bank of International Settlements, they have their conference, the Green Swan 2021 Coordinating Finance, because you can totally coordinate finance on climate change. Yeah, that's coming up here June 4th. Uh, I, I asked for an invite. We'll see if I get one. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll fly out there uh, right after Miami and I would love to attend. Uh, you know, uh, suit and tie, car in a suit and tie, you know, just taking notes, just taking notes. That's it. <laughs> we'll see. Um, anyways. But they, what they did, though, they did release their agenda, which I thought was really nice of them to do that because I didn't think they were going to release their agenda. And, man, there's some scary freaking panels here, man. Some scary shit going on. Anyways, we're not going to talk about that today. That's for another podcast that I'm still, I'm still researching. Uh, trust me. When this podcast, when this Thriller Insider gets released for this, for this podcast that I'm making, um, you know, people are going to lose their minds. Um, you know, yeah, people are going to lose their minds. You know, I, I think I think there's there's one podcast that we did last year. I want to say, yeah, it was, um, you know, how the Fed exit scammed America. We released that last year in April. You know, that was one where if you listen to that podcast now, we were so early. We were like a year early. And what you're seeing now happen, if you go back and listen to that, is literally taking place now. You know, people are slowly waking up to what what BlackRock and what all these other 
you know, bigger institutions are doing. And, and that's this whole kind of green energy movement. Right. And we were talking about it back then. Right. How BlackRock was only going to, you know, work with these companies that were going to be green. And this was the thing now. And man, we were so early back then. Anyways, this one that I'm working on now around everything here, um, it, it's it's going to it's going to turn people on its head, man. Um, I'm still researching it. I'm still trying to get everything sourced and make sure I, I give like a really good, complete presentation. It's going to it's going to take days uh, to record that because it's just it's it has to be perfect. I want it to be perfect. Anyways, that's going to be coming out. Hopefully, hopefully I can get that out before before June. Or no, not even before June. You know, it's probably, you know, probably before we 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 close out this fourth season. That'll probably be the season four closer. Um, yeah, maybe we'll see. I'm going to try. I'm still researching. Anyway, let's get back on topic. Car. Uh, so. Yeah, so basically announced that we are getting CBDC from the Fed. Uh, she announced that, you know, Federal Reserve Bank of Boston is going to publish a white paper. All, all super cool. But like I said, I love when they do these because they give out their playbook. They give out their roadmap. They give up the agenda. And O'Carr starts looking through the material. What does he find? That's right. Fed now. You remember Fed now, right? Fed now. Yeah. Fed now. Well, Fed now is actually going to be happening here very soon, uh, like 2023. So this is pretty scary, man. Uh, so, you know, for the longest time, we really didn't know how Fed now was going to work. And from the looks of it, we kind of understand what they're going to do now. And this is kind of scary. So just listen to this. So Fed account, they're basically going to be, okay, they're basically going to be creating these Fed accounts, right? And that's going to reduce payment system frictions. So the Fed uses real-time gross settlement, right? For interbank transfers, retail payment networks, basically everything in the United States. But with checks, they take up to two days to clear, you know, wire transfers, all that stuff. So they're making something called FedNow, right? But in that, in that kind of, in that kind of, in this kind of world where you have FedNow, what happens when you want to, I don't know, deal with a recession? You know, because there probably will be another recession if they keep doing what they're doing and keep printing. Right. Like when does the central bank, you know, come in and really go in there and try to fix things? So now that we have the keys to the playbook, <laughs> we can see they actually discuss this into these what they call, quote unquote, political obstacles. Um, that's one thing like. I'm starting to realize the older I get that um, these institutions, they're not very good crooks. <laughs> you know, they they hide their stuff in plain sight. Like they, they tell you exactly what they're going to do and they don't even lie about it. They tell you exactly how they're going to do their uh, 
whatever whatever there that is that they're going to do, they tell you exactly how they're going to do it and what they're going to do. They even have it in quotations, political obstacles. So Fed account requires legislation, basically is what they say. Although existing law empowers the Fed to lend to individuals and non-bank businesses, it does not authorize the Fed to provide them with transaction accounts. The required amendments would be minor. The Fed is already authorized to maintain accounts for institutions as well as for the United States government. The list should be expanded to include all U.S. persons as well. And the Fed should be required to provide accounts to all qualifying applicants. Additionally, existing law empowers the Fed to pay interest on balances maintained. This provision should be adjusted to empower the Fed to pay interest on balances maintained by all U.S. persons and to require it to pay a uniform rate to all its account holders. Although the required legislative fixes may be minor, Fed account will represent a major change in our financial and monetary architecture. Big changes in financial architecture are political challenging. The most pessimistic view is that they are virtually impossible without a crisis. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? The most pessimistic view is that they are virtually impossible without a crisis. Big changes in financial architecture are, are politically challenging. The most pessimistic view is that they are virtually impossible without a crisis. So they're basically saying that, you know, we can't make a change without a crisis. Aside from banks and certain shadow banking institutions whose existing business models, Fed account would disrupt practically every other segment of the American economy is likely to benefit from Fed account. This is just pure evil, man. Like, I understand what I understand what they're trying to do. They if they really think they're just going to create this fake crisis, I don't even know what this crisis is going to be in 2023. But let's just say hypothetically, they create some fake crisis. They 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 force Congress to pass legislation, right? And then they force Fed accounts down everybody's throats, you know, and they force business accounts to have Fed accounts, you know, and, and they basically force these businesses, you know, that are, quote unquote, too big to fail to have Fed accounts. That way they have direct liquidity at a moment's notice. Then everything is owned by the state at that point. How are we any different from China at that point? This is troubling for so many reasons, right? And that's because I haven't even gotten to some of the other stuff that I've researched here, right? Because I understand that we're covering consensus here, right? We're covering consensus day one and we're on the first panel and this is already looking pretty grim. And if you go to, if you go to Coindesk's article here about Bernard's panel today. It sounds just like the press release she read. Fed's Bernard breaks down CBDC policy considerations, sees price pressures waning in the future. Makes no mention of a Fed now. Makes no mention of how a crisis is going to be created here in 2023 because it's all it's all in citations. I'll put it here in the show notes so you can kind of look through it. It's pretty it's pretty upsetting, right? 
The only good thing that came out of all this, though, was they were able to finally give us a name, right? And I had no idea this was the same guy who I had actually seen earlier this year um, kind of show up all over the place. I saw him on, I think it was, I think it was Decrypt, maybe. But his name is Jin Kuna. He's the, I guess, I guess he's the the leader of the Boston Fed <laughs> Research Lab, uh, right? He discusses CBDCs back in February on on uh, CoinDesk. Uh, makes no mention of uh, Fed now. Um, I have a feeling they're going to kind of keep that under wraps, even though it was, it was interesting because that actually got announced in 2020. Um, but I have a feeling that's just going to stay quiet for now until they either rename it or merge it. We'll see. But take a listen. reported that the Boston Fed is exploring more than 30 different blockchain networks for the digital dollar project. Could you tell us details of what underlying architecture is gaining favor, whether that be a Fed-controlled centralized ledger or multi-party distributed ledger model? Yeah, so the main thing we're doing is really technology research uh, with uh, MIT's Digital Currency Initiative. So it's technology focused. Right now, we're building a prototype just to see whether a platform can handle the unique needs of the United States. That particular effort is technology agnostic. Uh, We're not necessarily looking or excluding uh, blockchain and distributed ledger type systems. Um, In addition to that, we're also looking at not deploying 30 more, but looking at 30 more platforms. They could be distributed ledger open source. uh, They could be private sector initiatives. We're trying to understand what's the possible suite of technologies that could possibly support a CBDC. Just say over the next two years or so, our research is going to take us. What do you distribution models? Sure, yeah. We're trying to build a system with MIT that can be deployed in many different ways. Those policy decisions are very complicated and they haven't been, been made yet. So we want a system that could either be uh, distributed through banks, uh, through other financial um, mechanism, uh, mechanisms or other players, or even directly to consumers. We're not saying they would be uh, sent directly to consumers, but we want to make sure the platform that we're building for prototyping 
can meet all those needs. All right. And what do you see as the advantages of a more open system rather than a centralized ledger or vice versa? How, how, and how would you resolve scaling challenges? Well, that's one of the major things we're looking at within the first phase of work. Uh, we're building a platform that can heat, that can meet the unique needs of the United States at its very core. So, for instance, throughput. We haven't set the exact number, but we're presuming that the number is going to be tens of thousands of transactions per second. So, by definition, that excludes some existing open source platforms, but not not, not all of them. And then once you add more programmability, more complexity to the system, you have to make sure it can still scale. So it can still reach, you know, multiples of tens of thousands of transactions per second. Once you add uh, certain things in there, for instance, like uh, know your customer or anti-money laundering, if those are features that are eventually makes the platform. So we are agnostic. We are building two platforms with MIT, but also looking at 30 or 40 more. And we'll take some of those 30 or 40 more and bring them into our labs and test. So we're not deploying 30, but we're looking at well over 30 different ways of trying and to. Are you favoring uh, a more centralized ledger? Uh, yes, most of them are well centralized in that, for instance, they'd be controlled by the Federal Reserve, but distributed in that there's probably multiple copies of them, you know, spread out one for performance perspectives, uh, one for resiliency, uh, for defense against cyber attacks. So traditional systems can still be distributed in that you can have data spread over multiple centers, processing spread over multiple centers. Our assumption is this is in the cloud, so very flexible as far as how this is actually distributed. But by distributed, I don't mean distributed ledger necessarily or blockchain, but a technology that allows for uh, performance and uh, throughput to be enhanced by the, this distributed nature. Right, and but run, run our into assumption is it would be controlled by the Federal Reserve right. as a as a centralized body versus decentralized as what Bitcoin is. And run in very no top consensus. secret locations, I imagine. How would the Fed control money supply with a digital dollar? You know, economist Nouriel Rubini came on the show a couple weeks ago and said CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, are inevitable, that there will be globally coordinated monetary policy, negative rates could become the norm. Do you agree? Well, there's a lot of questions packed in there. Uh, first of all, some countries um, are talking about interest rates on CBDCs, possibly even negative interest rates as a monetary policy tool. Uh, we have not really taken that tact in the U.S. It's going to be country by country decision as to, as to how that uh, particular piece. I do think we need to think about international interoperability so that we can fix some existing problems today, such as retail or wholesale cross-border. So I think those are all important aspects of it to make sure that it is distributed. As far as the money supply, uh, just like the money supply today, the Federal Reserve determines what has to be in circulation to meet the needs, and the same would be with the CBDC. Just because it's digital doesn't mean like it's, it's an endless, endless supply, it can become uh, inflationary. You know, It's really something that can be controlled, but within the existing ecosystem. So we don't see uh, a CBDC being digital as really changing the monetary policy uh, tools of the U.S. and not changing how much cash would be in circulation. I think that's a function of need and can be controlled. Uh, well, in the U.S., uh, currently, the Fed does not have the authority to limit any private digital currency. So right now, that's not even within the scope of our powers. Now, Congress could also take different steps, but I don't see any reason why there can't be a coexistence of a central bank digital currency in, in many of the forms of payment, traditional payment rails in the U.S., but also uh, cryptocurrencies. It really just depends on the individual currencies 
um, and how they operate. But I see no reason that a, a lack of coexistence shouldn't exist. In late on over retail space, but also in like a stable coin or more of a wholesale space as well. Right. So I definitely will, you know, will say it's good that, you know, they're not going to be going after Bitcoin, according to him. Um, but our next panelist, <laughs> Ray Dalio, thinks differently. Um, but that's it for this first panel. Uh, I know it was kind of long, but there really is a lot there. And I wish that I could dive in more. But if I do, it would be two hours long because there's there's a lot more there. And I really need to get my thoughts together on this. Um, I really need to get hyper focused on some of these um, papers that she's sourcing there for her press release today. Uh, and I want to create something that I think is going to be pretty magical here in the coming weeks. So that way. Um, we can end season four on an amazing note because I, I think, I think, uh, I think there's something there that's going to be pretty brilliant. But we'll see. Um, Y'all be the judge on that. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to creating that. Okay, so let's get into the second panel. Uh, it's with Ray Dalio, and um, this is one where, you know, again. I will say that um, in our industry, for whatever reason, everybody has a man crush on Ray Dalio. They really want this guy to be a Bitcoiner. Um, they really want this guy to be a part of our industry. Uh, it's almost like they, they need him to be uh, in order to get Warren Buffett <laughs> on our side. Uh I personally don't think we need these celebrities anymore um, or, or these financial people anymore. Um, 
I think at this point, you know, after seeing the whole Elon Musk thing kind of transpire, I realized that if Bitcoin is going to fail, then it fails on its own merit. If it's going to win, then it wins on its own merit. So I, I don't think we need any of these people anymore. Uh, I think Bitcoin can stand on its own two feet. Right. And I think it's going to be just fine without all these people. But anyway, the industry thinks the opposite. <laughs> so what happened today? Well, you know, let's let's kind of play it. Let's let's let Ray do Ray, because I actually think he did a lot better than the Texas A&M Bitcoin conference. Uh, that one was just all over the place. And Ray was kind of losing his mind. This one kind of does that, too. But. Like I said, let's Ray be Ray and tell his monetary, you know, story like he always does. And yeah, let's do it. time an economy gets weaker and so the they jab it with credit and it pumps it up and then but it accumulates this debt so it rises and they keep doing that until it becomes more and more difficult so as you get down to something like a zero interest rate it becomes more difficult and also the pile of that debt is also the pile of somebody's assets they own the bonds, they own the financial assets. And all of those financial assets are claims on real stuff, real goods and services. So when we think about money or storeholds of wealth, and you say, where is your wealth? We tend to de define it as those financial assets, but those financial assets have no purpose other than to sell them to get the goods and services. And when the pile becomes very big and the incentives for not holding that are, are no longer there, you have a problem, okay? Because like it's, it's gone through history. Uh, you have the, those financial assets wanna go to get the tangible assets. In the old days, that would be go get the gold or something. But when you go there, there's too many claims to, for, to get it. And then you have that problem. And inevitably, there's the printing of money. So we can so we can think of the financial system. We'll start there before we get to the wealth gap and the other thing. You can basically see that the cycle that we're in, the new world order, began in 1945 at the end of World War II. And that is when the United States won the war. These cycles happen this way. There's a conflict, there's a winner, and there's new rules of the game, and there's a new reserve currency, and that's the dollar. And the dollar was 
um, connected to gold. And it wasn't really, nobody thought of it as having any value. It was like checks in a checkbook. And the, the, the gold, the money was the gold. And so the little pieces of paper would go get you the gold. And that system then resulted in us spending. We had the privilege of the reserve currency. That meant people want to lend to us. We would spend more than we earned. And those who got these dollars turned those dollars in to get their gold. And the gold stocks um, went down. And then in 1971, I remember it well because I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. President Nixon says to the country or says to the world in his very polite and diplomatic way that you're not going to get the gold anymore. And so there was the devaluation, okay, meaning, okay, you and the printing of money, and we had the 70s and so on. So we're in a situation that's like that. We have the decline in, in uh, you know, the decline in real rates, the pushing of a lot of liquidity around, out because there's not enough money, not enough hard money. So they have to, uh, they, but everybody needs more money. So uh, we need that more money. So money is credit. You can make it up. So the government creates a lot of credit and the central bank prints a lot of money. And there's not much incentive to hold this money. Think about cash. If you hold cash, um, you get no interest rate, but there's an inflation rate that let's say 2% a year, and then you have taxes and things. And if you think about bonds, okay, that's not a, there's not much incentive there, you know, negative in, in, in some places. And so now we have a supply demand problem, okay? Because as you look at the budgets and you look ahead, we know we're going to need a, a lot more money, a lot more debt. And it's and this is all the cycle. You need the more money. You have to print that. You need more money. So taxes go up and that produces the dynamic. Now, I can keep going on about what happens in that dynamic. It may be capital controls. You start to go to things where that money wants to go someplace and it goes to almost anything else, particularly at all that time I learned in uh, 71, uh, painfully learned in 71, that it caused that it causes uh, like stocks to go up. It causes everything. We can deal with the mechanics of the stocks, gold, Bitcoin, um, real estate, uh, everything to go up because it's really going down in dollars. And that's the part of the cycle we're in. I think I should stop there. Yeah. First of all, there are two types of inflation. There's the supply demand inflation when demand is strong enough and it presses up against capacity like you don't have enough labor, unemployment rates are low and capacity is low and then prices go up and there's that kind of inflation. And then there's a monetary inflation, uh, which comes from um, the supply of debt being too much so that they produce more of the money and the holders of those financial assets, particularly bonds, because bonds is just a promise to receive money that the central bank can print. The holders of that then go into those other things. And then what happens is then you, you just have to follow the money. So you see who gets the money. And then when they get the money, you see what, what they do with that money.
So um, let's say if you change who gets the money now, because we're going to change that taxes will change that other things will change that that goes then to those other people. So the inflation, the, the big inflations, uh, the ones that are really most important are not the ones of the supply and the demand. They are the ones like that which followed 1971, my example. Okay, there's not enough money. You you put, put it down, uh, you'd value, in other words, you sever the link. And then with that, then there's a monetary inflation. You go into those other things and then you, know, you have that. So the risk, uh, let's say our, there's two risks. Um, we will have a hell of a lot of demand because we put all that money in. Cash is all over the place. And even investments, um, you know, all the investments go up because of so much cash. And how do you find a good investment? But uh, it, but in also it there's so much money and it'll cha change the, the amount that is in the hands of individuals and so on. And so if uh, it, now it's in cash and that'll move on because cash is trash. I mean, I, I'd say that because it'll have that negative real return. So we're going to um, the real risk. You, you'll you'll experience more inflation um, right now. A lot of it is in cash and there'll be a lot more money being produced. And but you'll experience that more in that kind of uh, inflation. Things will go up. You could see inflation in houses, inflation in, you know, many things is going up. And then you'll start to see probably some labor inflation. If you start to see labor inflation and so on, it'll be a different kind of inflation, though. It'll be um, like uh, because we're in a, a more digital society, um, there won't be that, that those things can be produced. That supply of digitalization can be produced without the capacity constraint. But the big monetary inflation is the thing. Where do I store my wealth? OK, because. What happens to the markets is then when you go to those other things, let's say you go to stocks, you go to real estate, you go to other things because they're getting out of that. As those prices rise like a bond, their future expected returns go down. And as they come closer to the interest rate, so now you've got whatever the interest rates are, it depends on the country, but it comes down, then there's no longer the incentive to buy those things and you could have trouble. And it becomes very difficult to tighten monetary policy because the whole thing falls apart. You know, everything's interest rate sensitive. And so the central bank has got to then print that. Then you have negative real returns in stocks and other assets like we did in the 70s, but the nominal return goes up. That pattern has happened over and over. And that's, I'm just trying to describe the mechanics of it.
Okay, so that's Ray being normal Ray, right? Saying the same stories told <laughs> a bazillion times. Um, so now he gets into to Bitcoin and Ethereum and really sounds like a bear, man. Really sounds like he really doesn't know anything about this stuff. Um, so take a listen. Look, um, if you have... You know, you have private wallets, cold storage and so on. Then you got to transact and so on. And the history, um, like I would say, and governments cooperating against that or even how do you deal with it? I don't know for sure, uh, but I would say one would have to consider that history would suggest that's a significant risk. If you feel that you, you, others are better judges of that risk. Um, but, you know, it's um, anyway, you judge um, that risk. I can't I can't say I would say it's a real you know, it certainly has to be considered a real risk, because if you take most of Bitcoin, which is owned and how it's owned, and so on. It's not owned in that way. And it's going to be a big thing. And I don't know. And then, you know, there are other things I don't know, you know, uh, what what is the, the next demand? And, and so on. look at all currencies have died. So when you uh, in other words, they're going to agree um, that uh, they don't want you to run wild with your uh, your currency. Uh, again, I'm dealing with as a storeholder wealth as different from a transaction, because I'm talking about, you know, what is it? Uh, its value is distinct from the transaction so at, for efficiency. Yeah, it seems like Ethereum or, or others in terms of maybe others, you know more about that than I do in terms of transactions. And certainly for China, it has a lot of advantages, including um, it can't be uh, sanctions cannot be. It, it has the it clearing system. It's its own clearing system and there are benefits. But all these currencies are going to be competitive. And then the question is how they're allowed to compete. And one of the great things, I think, as a worry is the government having the capacity to control almost any of them, including Bitcoin or the digital currencies. So, I mean, they know where that they are and they know what's going on and so on. And then we have to have that particular issue uh, cases where, you know, it'll be outlawed and it really takes quite something um, to, um, you, you know, ha uh, say I'm going to have it, even though it's outlawed. And so on, those have consequences. And you're seeing that like in India and other places. So. The question as we wrestle with this are those, how will they compete? What are the pros and cons? And the thing that I would suggest is we agree on the environment and we agree on the dynamic, but why does it have to be one or the other? I mean, why, why can't it just be like, I don't really know how they're all going to compete and I want a properly diversified portfolio of gold. I mean, you know, you know, the Bitcoin people, the Bitcoin people and the gold people, the gold people. And I think that you, you have to think about, OK, you, do you have enough of the diversification of those alternative currencies? You don't need them, right? Bitcoin's the ultimate store of value, especially when it comes to those alternative currencies. And then with the uh, Fed now accounts, <laughs> you're going to want to make sure you have some Bitcoin. You're going to want to make sure you have some hard money. Um, so 
Now take a listen to him talk about Bitcoin again later on down the same interview. Yeah, I think Bitcoin's greatest risk is its success. Mm. Because as it becomes more right now, it's not such a big deal. Um, And, you know, fighting it is more of a big deal. Um, And that's that's it, because it's not that big a deal. Um, As it becomes a bigger deal and more of a threat, let's say people want to sell their bonds and they want to buy Bitcoin. Um, And they want to do that in a bigger way, like buying gold or something in a bigger way. Um, And then there's more transaction. They lose control over that. And that's an existential risk. So, yes, that's connected. Uh, The more we create savings in it, the more. Um, you might say, I'd rather have Bitcoin than the bond. Personally, I'd rather have Bitcoin than a bond. Um, and, um, and then the more that happens, um, then it goes into Bitcoin and it doesn't go into credit and then they lose control of it. So yeah, that's a risk. So it's kind of interesting how he starts off like trying to scare off people. Then he, then he says a, a joke like, you know, I'd rather have Bitcoin than a bond. He's just all over the place, man. Uh, you you really you really don't know if he's drunk, <laughs> if he's senile, if the guy is uh, getting paid. Uh, I mean, I, I really don't even know what to think. I, I think people that are close to him, maybe family members, could probably give you a better idea uh, of what to make of all that uh, mumbo jumbo that he says. Uh, I, I really couldn't tell you. I, I really don't know. But if you look at the headlines out there in the space today, all you see is Ray said, <laughs> I'd rather hold Bitcoin than bonds. That's all you see. That's all you see out there in the industry today. But as you heard just right there, it, it was it was, it was like a, a little side joke that he made. Um but that's that's our industry. Okay, so this is the last thing that he says about Bitcoin. And um, yeah, take a listen. Watch the total um, total value of Bitcoin right now is a little over trillion dollars. Total value of uh, bonds uh, is about twenty. Uh, our bonds is U.S. dollar bonds about twenty three trillion dollars, and so on. Not only watch the price, although in Bitcoin's case, the demand follows the price, watch the total values of those things. Hmm. And as those, and you know, plot it on a chart and watch those things and watch the flows. Because if you start to see that kind of thing, you could almost see, you know, like the blow off and, you know, and then, and then that kind of reversal. A little over a trillion dollars in Bitcoin. If uh, for gold, um, if you take out central bank ownerships, because central banks won't own Bitcoin as a, I don't believe for various reasons that I can digress it as an asset. And if you take out jewelry from gold, uh, from, then you have a bit over $5 trillion. So if you were to look at it now and you were to say a port, what's, what's a 
person who wants a diversification of those two things. It's about, you know, like 80, 20 right now in the world. So that's something I'd watch too. But I think those things probably are going to rise relative to the bonds and it would transpire that way. So you want to watch those numbers and, and, uh, and see how those go. If you look at uh, ByteTree, uh, they actually had some research that we covered. I think it was Bitcoin in April, where they actually showed significant moves from bonds to Bitcoin. Um, but Ray wouldn't know that because he doesn't follow the space. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, this was day one uh, of consensus. These these were the first two panels. They were, you know, overall, I, I think Ray did amazing. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff that uh, he did here um, was great. I, I just I just think that you know, we as industry just need to stop trying to you know try to get these guys onboarded. You know, I, I just I don't see the point of it anymore. But I know I'm just like one of you know, a million who believe that at this point, you know, I know I'm the uh, odd man out on that kind of uh, thinking. So continue on industry, continue on courting Ray Dalio. Um, but yeah, so tomorrow we're going to bring you the rest of day one panels. Um, there's quite a lot and some good ones too. I'm actually looking forward to um, speaking on them. There, there's some really good ones. And then we're going to bring you day two of consensus as well, too. So, yeah, it's overall a pretty good first day here for Coindesk. Bravo. Okay. You know, I feel like uh, it's going to be a really long week, <laughs> but I'm super excited. Uh, I should mention that uh, we're going to release a birth crypto death tomorrow, which is today, because this is getting released Tuesday, even though I started on Monday <laughs> when, I, when I restarted recording this. 
But uh, yeah, a special announcement. Special announcement on Birth Crypto Death. So check that out. But yeah, overall, good day here at Consensus. I'm looking forward to speaking more on China tomorrow. So that should be really interesting. And uh, also, I think the rest of the week is very Ethereum heavy. So we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna see a lot of uh, you know NFTers, some Dowers, <laughs> and some you know E2 promises that hopefully will come true at some point so be on the lookout for that all right see you next time